the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. What fruit had ye, therefore, in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. In last week's epistle, St. Paul described baptism as dying and rising with Christ. In this week's epistle, he describes the behavior that results from baptism in terms of slavery. Some have suggested that St. Paul is using the slave market of his day as an analogy. A slave who was bought by a new master no longer had obligation to serve the old master. So Christ has bought us by his blood. We are no longer obligated to serve sin, but are rather uh, obligated to yield our members as servants of Christ. However, I think the exodus was more, was more of what St. Paul had in mind in this baptism behavior uh, discussion. Israel was saved by the blood of the Passover lamb and passed through the Red Sea waters. This is an image of baptism. In the water, the people left an old way of life behind. They died, as it were, to slavery in Egypt. When they emerged on the other shore, they were free. They sang the song of Moses, which we remember from the Easter vigil. Quote, we will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. Of course, anyone who has read on in Exodus past chapter 15 knows how short-lived this newfound freedom was. The people of Israel quickly reverted to their former habits of behavior. They did not trust God who had so powerfully saved them. They began to want the things they used to have in Egypt. They began to worship again the idols that they had supposedly left behind. They began to murmur and complain, and this all led to a full-scale rebellion against God and against Moses. The children of Israel had been saved from Egypt, but all the old habits of Egypt remained in their bodies, in their minds, and in their appetites. Consequently, they had to spend 40 years in the wilderness learning how to serve God. We are saved from sin and death in baptism. However, even after you receive the grace of baptism and experience conversion of the heart, all of our old patterns of thought, speech, and behavior remain in us. We must spend an extended season of time learning to become servants of God and followers of Christ. This is perhaps the main issue confronting the church in our time. A significant majority of the people in our country identify themselves as Christians. This usually means that they have been baptized and or have had some kind of conversion experience. But 
Nothing like a significant majority of people have left their old habits behind. Faith and the gift of the Spirit give us the power to change. But we must work at that change by grace. And this is a paradox. Our natural human effort cannot save us. Only grace can save us. But grace requires effort. There is grace in the sacrament, but you must actually come to the sacrament to receive that grace. There is grace experienced in the life of prayer, but you must actually pray habitually to experience that grace. There is grace in the practice of fasting, but you must actually abstain from things to experience that grace. Baptism and faith make it possible for us to live as servants of God. But we must actually, by daily acts of the will, yield our members as servants to righteousness. Let's give a few concrete examples of the problem in our culture. Many people identify themselves as Christians, but live in the same fear of death that characterizes the non-believer. We celebrate Jesus' triumph over death, the promise of resurrection and life in the world to come. And then we hold on to this life the way a scared child holds on to his mother. Many people identify themselves as Christians, but practice a sexual ethic that is indistinguishable from the world. Jesus calls us to be faithful in marriage and abstinent outside of marriage. But we are too often willing to sacrifice at the altar of convenience, pleasure, and accommodation. Many people identify themselves as Christians but never begin to live life in the redeemed and sanctified time of the new creation. People try to find time to fulfill Christian duties rather than reordering all of their time so that life serves God. We died to sin and became servants of Christ in baptism, but we too often continue to dutifully present our members as servants to unrighteousness, to old patterns of behavior. We cling to our old habits and patterns, even though they don't make us happy or content. Sin is a very effective liar. It continually promises what it continually fails to deliver, yet we dutifully continue in our familiar patterns of thought, speech, and behavior, believing the lie that this time it will produce something different. Living in fear of death doesn't make life better or cause us to live longer. It only makes us fearful. Following the world standard for sex doesn't make Christians happier. It just makes them as insecure and unfulfilled by sex as the world around us. 
neglecting service to God in favor of every urgent demand of the clock God doesn't bring us peace or joy. It just makes us as anxious and exhausted as those who know not God. We are strangely obedient to such an unfaithful master. The problem is that we say we have faith, but often we do not really believe. There is always this idea embedded in our slavery to sin, that if we really give up our unfaithful habits of thought, word, and deed, if we really do what God says to do, we will lose some good and irreplaceable thing. It couldn't possibly work. It's just not feasible or realistic. We have to make some compromises to get by, right? Whenever we say yes, continue in our old habits, we are saying that we do not really believe God. We do not really have faith. To be saved by faith is not merely to have been saved by faith at some past moment in time. It is to live by faith, by trust, by obedience to God in the present moment. We must really believe that what God asks us to do is best. Sometimes it takes captivity to a sinful habit for a season of time with its attendant consequences to learn that what God wants for us is best for us. Sometimes we have to go through a crisis. Our world has to be shaken before we can break our dutiful service to sin. Sometimes we have to purposely withdraw or retreat from the way we live in order to change our habits. God purified Israel by leading her through the dry and barren wilderness in order to teach her new things. Sometimes, actually often, God has to take us into the wilderness to strip away our old habits and teach us to live in a new way. It is instructive that our epistle is paired with the feeding of the multitudes in the gospel. In the feeding miracle, Jesus purposefully led to people to a place where there was nothing in order to reveal himself to them in that barren place as creator and bread of life. We often complain or murmur when things are taken from us. Why is God doing this? This is a familiar human refrain dating back to the Exodus. If we ask the question, we ought to hear the answer. God takes things away in order to give us something more. Our attachment to the lesser things must be removed before we can receive the greater thing. And we also have to taste the greater thing. We have to know by our experience with God that the bread of heaven is more than all earthly things before we will begin to give up those earthly things to have more of that genuine food. Once we learn that the wilderness 
is actually the place where we come to know Jesus more fully. Once we learn that saying no to unfaithfulness in the present moment results in a greater fulfillment, peace, and joy in the long run, we become less afraid of the wilderness. We become less afraid of the death that leads to life. But now, being made free from sin and become servants of God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end, everlasting life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.